I'm here with Sister Jane Dominic. She is a Nashville Dominican. Is that the proper way to say it? <laughs> Sister is a professor at University of Dallas. She has a doctorate from the Angelicum in Systematic Theology. And you're here at the network taping a, or you're editing a series. Tell us about the series you're working on. Thank you for having me, Father Mark. So the series we're working on is called Praying as a Family. And basically, we traveled around and we visited about 35 families and just listened to their stories of faith, their stories of prayer, their story, the stories of their struggles, of their sorrows, of the joy that they find in the faith and the sacraments and going to Mass, and also how that same faith has helped them through their struggles in family life, how it's helped them probably in a very deep and meaningful way to connect with each other. To become vulnerable to each other because I think especially in our day what's one of the greatest epidemics but loneliness disconnection uh, the shame that comes from not feeling like we belong or not feeling like we're good enough and I think what happens in families who pray together is there's a deeper source of their unity and that unity is the Lord himself and the life of prayer that feeds that and what are some of the practical tips that you teach in the series about how to pray together? Well, the series itself is not actually, strictly speaking, a catechetical type of series. It's really more a way to meet families, though there are catechetical segments. So depending on the particular theme, so for instance, if the theme is forgiveness, then there could be a catechesis on, for instance, um, one of the scriptures that talks about forgiveness. Or if the theme is about suffering, then there could be a catechesis on suffering and why God allows us to suffer. So really what families are doing is sharing their experiences about prayer or why prayer works or how they themselves live a private prayer life or their personal prayer life and how that helps their marriage and how maybe the married couple prays together. So really the catechesis comes from the book that we published a few years back called a short guide to praying as a family. So it's the book that our congregation published to help families pray together, from which the television series comes. Okay. I know I'm as a priest. I'm all, I've, you know, I just uh, work with a lot of women and mothers, and I'm always impressed by. I grow an appreciation of it, the charism to pray and intercede for their children. And uh, somebody, another Dominican, actually described to me that how God gives authority. Now in the world we think in terms of power, taking power and stuff, but God gives authority, he gives a priest authority to pray for people, con you know, his congregation, or to intercede as an office of the priesthood. And I think in marriage, in the sacrament of marriage, you know, the couples are to pray, help sanctify one another, and to raise and educate their children, and that of course includes prayer for them. And it always, uh, it always amazes me how, you know, women mothers uh, just have their children in their heart and just aren't at peace until their children are okay and they storm heaven you know for and maybe talk about that gift a little bit um, that they that's clearly something they've been gifted with so I think one of woman's gifts is precisely her love her capacity to love to accept to see into what another is struggling with, but not just what, what another person is struggling with, but also to see what they're gifted with. And I do think part of woman's gift is 
it's not in her authority, but it's really in her influence, right? I think we can all, if we had good mothers, we can all think of a time that our mother inspired us. She didn't force us, she inspired us to want something good. And you see so many of the best educators and so many of the saints who talk about that, that the way a child is best led is when you inspire them to choose the good rather than forcing them to choose the good. And how do you inspire them? Well, by your example, right? By being good yourself, by, um, by showing the joy, the peace, the hope that comes from, from uh, choosing the good. I think one of the things women also struggle with, this is the, the, the darker side, is we struggle sometimes, I think, with control. And if, if a woman becomes controlling, then she can't, in a sense, really accomplish what she wants to accomplish, which is to draw others to the good. She ends up forcing them into the good. And so you, you in a sense, lose that feminine gift of being able to draw others by your example or by your gentleness or by your tenderness. By your um, by your love, by your sensitivity. Right, I don't know if I answered right, your question. Right, yeah. yeah, the passage I think about sometimes, you know, from Genesis, uh, God, you know, creates Adam, and in the account where He creates the woman from His rib and brings her to Him, and He comes out like with this love song. Oh, this is the last flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, and He like marvels at this creation. I I, I thought of that when you talked about inspiration and how. Uh, oftentimes a woman's influence is through inspiration and and um, we were sharing just a minute ago my, you know, my mom was recently in the hospital and I got to see uh, women doctors you know, women nurses and some of our women friends come to visit her and uh, and you know that you know when you're sick and suffering and you know the, the gift of femininity the beauty and the inspirational qualities, the joy and the smile and things uh, that quickly come to readily at women's uh, <laughs> power, you know. But uh, it's so needed when people are, are suffering and sick. And uh, so I just saw that charism at work. And um, it's like that I intellectually knew, but when you're in it for a week and seeing it, it's really powerful. When you were speaking about Adam and Eve, it made me think of the papal theologian uh, Wojciech Giertek, who happens to be a Dominican. And he talks about how woman's original vocation was to draw man out of his loneliness, yeah. right? So the scriptures say it is not good for man to be alone. And so God creates for man woman. And how is it that woman draws man out of his loneliness, but by, in a sense, teaching him what it means to be vulnerable, teaching him what it means, in a sense, to open yourself. You could almost say how to be weak, right? And I think if you you were sharing the, that beautiful experience of being at the hospital with your mother, and, you know, we just think of our moms, and to think of losing our moms is, is something genuinely frightening. And I think... Therefore, you're in this, this moment of vulnerability, this weakness, this recognizing your mortality. And the presence of those women doctors and the women nurses, there's something about just their presence and the way that they are that tells you, you know what, it's going to be okay. Right. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to be vulnerable. Right. And I think that is, in a sense, what draws us um, to connect with others. Right. right? If you think about Eve, 
how does she teach men how to be vulnerable? By her own, again, her being vulnerable, mm -hmm. right? She is, she is like physically weaker than man, mm -hmm. but in that weakness is strength. Mm -hmm. And there's something so beautiful too about how man and woman, you see this in theology, right? This whole idea that man images God, the creator, and woman images the creature. Mm -hmm. And Hans Urs von Balthasar would speak about God's love, and he would explain it this way. He would put in the mouth of God these words, your otherness is an expression of my deepest love. Mm -hmm. So our weakness, our nothingness, is an expression of God's love, right? God in his greatness, in his omnipotence, in his transcendence, he doesn't need us. And yet he stoops down to our nothingness. He stoops mm -hmm. down to our weakness, to our creatureliness, to show us what God, who God is, what God is like, what love is like. Mm -hmm. And so in some way, man and woman uh, image this relationship between God and the creature. That's why, in a sense, I... It is one of the reasons I've always loved being a woman, right? Because it's so much easier to be the creature, <laughs> to image the creature than it is to image the creator. So I think that's what women can help men remember is their creatureliness. And in relief, I think they can show us um, the beauty of God's love because it is, it's so present to us in our weakness somehow. Um, in our need is when we it's when we're weak, when we're vulnerable, that we can connect to God, that we can mm -hmm. connect to each other. Because I think we see how it is that God creates us to be for the other mm -hmm. in the way that he is for us. Right. Yeah, I, I just, I heard a, I remember a wife told me one time, they'd been married many, many years, and she said, you know, that men without women, they just, bec or without wives, you know, they just become all about the work. You know, and about things and doing and achieving, and and women oftentimes you know, have a great emphasis, focus on relationships, and I think that does make them vulnerable. You know, to be heard and stuff like that. That they, uh, that's what they care about. It's not like super marketable skills that give you power and all this kind of stuff. And you're right, it is unchallenged. It's not a challenge like your guy and you know some other one, some other super achiever guy who comes into the room. It's not a nurturing thing, you know. It's kind of like the bars raised in the room, but. Uh, so this is one of my personal thoughts, and just in reflecting on when God created us, or when God was created, He would create something, and then He would say it was good. He would create something, and then He would say it was good. So I think that men, in a sense, image God, right? They have this life-giving initiative. They want there to be good, so they they order. The polis, they order the city, they work. But what do women do? Women nurture, like you just said, Father. They they see they see that something is good, and they they speak right. They say to you, "You are good," or "This is the gift that you have." So, what does that do when when a woman sees the good in you? What does it make? What does it do for a man? It draws the good even more out of him. It makes him. It, in a sense, gives him this psychic power mm -hmm. to accomplish, to continue, to achieve, to sacrifice. So I think that that's part of the beautiful complementarity between man and woman. That man says, like God said, let there be. Mm -hmm. And then woman says, it is good. right? Because what is man's accomplishment? 
if woman's not there to say, wow, that was great, right? Or, or that was fabulous, or this is so needed, this is exactly what we needed. So I think you see that dynamic happening within the family, right? That the, that the father will have the foresight to make such and such a preparation. And after he's done it, this appreciation that comes forth from his wife, his her saying, it is good, mm-hmm. in a sense, helps him to continue to serve the family mm-hmm. in that type of way. I think one of the most beautiful arenas in which you see this complementarity of male and female is in the raising of children, right? So that the father, the, I'm sure both husband and wife want the child, but it's really the mother who's the first to say to each one of us, right? When we come into, our, into the world, we love our moms because mom is the one to say, you are good. I'm so happy that you exist. So a child comes to understand his goodness and how he is delightful most closely through his mother. But then I think the father will, in a sense, almost um, image or mimic the mother in doing that, right? Wow. That's why John Paul II would talk about um, womanhood as the radiation of fatherhood, that it's, it's, it's a woman who invites the father to take up his role as father. Yeah, I've heard it described like, too, like the woman, the woman, the mother would introduce the child to the father, the father would introduce that child to the outside world and kind of stretch them. I remember my mom told me that one time that, you know, that she said somehow, like, you know, my dad would challenge us more than she ever would. And to me, that's an image of the father's love, too, in the spiritual life, because he's not leaving us where we're at. You know, he allows all these trials for us to grow. And I, I see that kind of in my father's care and love for us, that my human father that you know he wants us to get ready to go out in the big bad world and have a family and everything we need to grow we can't stay where we're at you know and it it takes kind of that tough love but yeah i think that's i think that's right on because what what the mother's love does is she in a sense gives the child a sense of security Mm -hmm. right that comes from knowing that you're good knowing that you're strong knowing that you can Mm -hmm. and so that idea uh, or that's like security, what does it do? It prepares you for the father taking you out yeah. and challenging you to take risks, mm-hmm. right? Bringing you to the adventure, you could say. Yeah. Because if we're not secure, we can't take risks. Yeah. And so it's like the mother gives you the security and then the father challenges you to take the risk so that you can grow. Right. And when my mom was in the hospital, I have a Baptist friend that works here. He's a deacon in his church and he's got a very real, very practical faith and very active in church, and I, I said, um, we were talking, I was telling about my mom, he knows her, and I, I said, I, I want you to go down and pray for her, and I want you to pour that Baptist faith into her, that strength, you know, and is he, there's something in his charism, you know, he just has this strength about him that, um, that is just encouraging, he's an encourager, you know, and I, I, I see that in men, too, like a fatherly presence that, uh, and I tell, especially older men. I remember one time I went to this men's conference and we were having a little breakfast before the conference began. I sat at these table of 50, 60 year old men. And I think they all had had some kind of conversion experience. And they talked about dealing with their son-in-laws and trying to help them. <laughs> and, uh, but I was, I was just impressed or touched by their role and the importance of their role. And I can say that as a man, you know, I have older men friends that I, really count on and I need and I go back to just for guidance and everything and and our world isn't you know we're not 
promoting that right now. I mean, you know, I, I think in television and everything, men are, uh, you know, put down and stuff. So, you know, I tell men, you have a role to mentor, to guide, to lead, to form, and there's just something about the presence that they bring that uh, is very much necessary. And it's interesting, too, like the studies show that the kids are more influenced by the father's faith than the woman's faith. And you think women are usually more prayerful, you know, more quicker to believe, more spiritual. But I find that, you know, they image, the father images God the Father and, and like, guides the children to, like, this is a good thing, this is the right thing, this is how you live, you know. I, I completely agree, and I think that one of the things that our society is suffering from is, in a sense, the absence of fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember seeing the U.S. Census Bureau study, and they don't study, it doesn't seem to me the U.S. Census Bureau studies things consistently, but back in 2010, um, one of their studies was on the number of American households that had a father figure that was present, and I think it was 47%. Mm-hmm. So only 47% of American households have a father figure that's present, right? So right. And you think sometimes that's a, a cohabitating, you know, boyfriend yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So it's not always even the best of circumstances. Right. But this shows that there's this absence mm-hmm. of fathers. And you think about God the Father, and what is God the Father? But presence. He's mm-hmm. that. He's the strength. He's the guiding the guiding power, the guiding mm. presence, the guiding, he's, he, I mean, he's obviously a personal God, mm. right? He's, he's the wise one, mm. he's the counselor, he's the, there's the protector, there's so many mm. things that we're, that our society is missing because of that, the lack of the father. Yeah. So I think it also makes sense though, because if men image God the father, that's where the devil's going to attack first, right? right. He's going to attack fathers. He's going to attack priests. He's going to attack. Um, he's going to attack. I think also chastity, because I think the the chaste love of a married man, right, that, or the or the celibacy of the priest, those are an image of God the Father, right? That there's this there's a self sacrificial love that is born of. A self-possession, a self-discipline, this capacity to deny and master myself, right? That that we lost with the fall. But those things are essential to that fatherly presence. A presence that is for the other and mm-hmm. not not to exploit, not because I'm in this for something for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that it's that self-sacrificing love that we see of Christ on the cross. That's what men image, right? That's what images God the Father, is is Christ's self-sacrificial love on the cross. Yeah. And the, the chastity, like you said, allows us to have the self-possession to give of ourselves. And it you know, divides us when we fail in that and, and we're just not present or we're chasing after our own. just weakens us not to stand up or not to enter the battle or just to get into our own world of toys and stuff. <laughs> Not to engage. That's kind of a key word that I always hear. I hear, you know, women will say, wives will say, I just want my husband to be present, to engage. It's almost like to bring his gifts to bear in the family and not uh, 
elsewhere. So, and two, you know, I was reading some of Dr. Meg Beaker's work. Some of you've read her, and she she talked about the influence the father has on the on the daughter. You know, in terms of her stability. Maybe you could say a little bit about that, or sure. So. Yes, Meg Meeker's work, as far as I'm exposed to it, I think is excellent. So strong fathers, strong daughters, and boys should be boys. So um, I think that's really true, that, that in a sense, what the father of a family does is he images God the father to both his sons and his daughters. So what does he give to his son? He gives to his son this sense that you have what it takes to be a man, right? He teaches his son all forms of self-mastery, physical self-mastery, psychological self-mastery. He helps his son to to accept his fear, to overcome his fear, to accept his own sadness, to accept his anger. He teaches his son how to deal with his emotions. So he teaches him physical self-mastery, psychological self-mastery, sexual self-mastery, right? He teaches him about uh, pornography, what sex should be used for, uh, all those types of things. and. In a sense, I think he teaches him also a spiritual self-mastery. So the father is the one who initiates his own son into the world of masculinity, what it means to be a man. For his daughter, I think what a father does is he shows her that she is the beloved daughter, that that she's cherished, that she's protected, that she's good, that she's beautiful. I think for... For a woman to have received that from her father, that in a sense forms the foundation for her as a woman um, so that she can go out and in a sense know what a man should be. She learns like how she should be treated, right? With, with respect, with dignity, that she's protected, not exploited. So it's her father that gives her that sense. I think there are studies that have also shown um, that if a woman doesn't receive her father's love, she may look for it in, you know, a boyfriend. And she is is perhaps more likely to be promiscuous because she doesn't understand um, or she has such a desire for her father's love that she could look for it in the wrong ways right. from another man. So I think uh, a woman's own sense of confidence, security of her lovableness, of the fact that she's beautiful... So much of that comes from her own father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know we were talking about this this morning too, about, um, I know my own life, you know, needing, I was discerning the priesthood and everything and needing that father figure. My father had passed away and, and I got it from my grandfather about the assurance that, hey, this is a good life and this is a, a good way to spend your life, you know, the priesthood and things. And I, I think, I think men, especially, because I, I think, you know, one of the energy, one of the, the gifts of masculinity is that energy in things that they have. And it needs to be guided, you know. And men have a special role, I think, in guiding that. And they're given that energy, I think, especially to transform the world, you know, to prepare the way for the kingdom, to, to till and keep the vineyard, you know. And, and today it's like it's kind of... I don't know. Sometimes it's, it's it's put in such a negative way. But when I hear about like, obviously not boys misbehaving, but like the energy of boys, that always makes me smile. And I'll tell little boys that I said, you know, that that's a gift you have. You know, that kind of energy and everything. You got to use it to good. You know, and you got to take that hill. And you got to go there and you got to claim that. And uh, 
So, yeah, without fathers to guide that. I, I heard Joseph Pieper, he described one time, you know, <laughs> you want to maybe go in that room? With, uh, well, that's where the computers are. Yeah, are they making noise there? Or maybe? No, I don't think so. But maybe this is passing. Oh, okay. Okay. I know Joseph Pieper described. Um, he he described the man's role, like in the family, as a like the conductor to symphony. That he's got to bring in harmony, all these instruments, and and make something beautiful to guide them. And I, I do see that charism in men oftentimes to kind of objectively look at things and, and order them and stuff in a way that's harmonious and fruitful and beneficial for everyone. <clears throat> and I just feel like that message has got to get out there because it's like men are so beaten down today, you know. But yes, I think it's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> one of the families we interviewed in the Praying as a Family television series, one of the dads was talking about how men have this energy and it's to fight mm -hmm. right so what are you supposed to fight for right. we're supposed to fight for what's most precious what's most valuable and what is that but the faith yeah. and the family right. and so that's that's the direction that energy takes and if you look at those um those i guess what would be called the archetypal images of man what are they soldier yeah. warrior yeah. monk lover, right? So this idea of, and of course the chaste lover, right? That the, the lover who becomes the husband. So these images, they're all images of, of strength and of energy, but where is that energy directed? But toward what's noble and what's good and toward self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice for something that is greater than yourself. Right. And what's the thing that's greater than yourself? Country, family, God. Right? So I think one of, the, one of the sad things that's happening in our culture, and especially with technology just right there at our fingertips in our back pocket, that so much of, of, that, of that wonderful, powerful, masculine strength, sadly it's being directed to self. Yeah. And it, that's when I think it becomes destructive. And in yeah. fact, I, I remember Raniero Cantalamesa saying that, that what is the most, um, you know, what is the, what is in a sense, the, the saddest thing we can we can give ourselves to mm -hmm. is only self, right? Because mm -hmm. then it, there's a kind of um, it it leads to a kind of death almost. Yeah. So I think one of the things that we have to remember is that because of original sin, our tendency will be self, and to consciously, with the grace of God, ask for His grace, ask for His strength, to not direct it toward ourselves, but to direct it toward those those beautiful, wonderful things that are outside of ourselves. And that's where we're going to find joy, right? That's Gaudium et Spes 22, right? My, man discovers himself in the sincere giving of yeah. himself. Right. Yeah, I'd love to see that transformation in men. Uh, I remember talking to a guy on a plane, and he was a young man, you know, he'd married, and uh, just talking about his family and everything. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was it was just clear to me that you know, the family and children and, you know, the wife were just calling him out of himself, you know, to become something more to direct mm -hmm. the energy. And uh, and that's such a beautiful transformation. It seems like it comes more naturally to the wife and mother. It just seems like the guy's got to be a little more conscious with it or something uh, to guide the energy, I guess. But, uh, 
anyway, it is a beautiful um, complementarity. And I, that's always the word, you know, that the church is used to describe the relationship between men and women as complementary. And I always try to get that in there, that it's totally equal, perfectly equal, but it's not an egalitarian thing. It's different mm -hmm. gifts that can serve to others. Mm -hmm. And the, the mutual submission is to lay down our gifts at the feet of the other in the community. So. Yes, and I, I love that John Paul II said that, is, is not man that unique being who must constantly surpass himself? Right. And I think that's part of the beautiful dynamic that, that we see in marriage, but also in religious life and in yeah. the priesthood, is this idea that you die to yourself every day, right? There's a cross to pick up every day. It's not like once you've done it, you're done. Right. We're, we're continually growing, right? So, you know, when you're young and idealistic, you just want to give everything to the mm -hmm. Lord. And He takes you with, with all of your energy yeah, and all of yeah. your enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. But then you become competent and then you run into midlife, right? Where things get a lot harder and you're like, what, you know, did I really choose this? Did I really choose to marry this person? Did I know raising children was going to be this hard? Did I know this illness was going to come? And you, that's... You start taking things back. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so that challenges you <clears throat> to either go deeper or go home, right? So I think that's... This is where we grow, is where in, yeah. in that midlife, in that time of competency where you feel like you know better, yeah. that you make the choice to say, okay, I'm starting to feel this void. And how am I going to fill this void? Am I going to fill it with what's good? Or am I going to fill it with what's bad? Am I going to choose God? Or am I going to choose myself? Am I going to choose my family? Am I going to choose what I've given myself to? Am I going to keep my commitment? And I think that's the real test of character. That's where we all grow, whether we're men or women, is, is am I going to choose what I know is right? Because I think that's where the devil gets us. And I think it's great, you know, there are all these, this book just came out called The Noonday Devil, right? Like in the middle of our lives, this laziness, this sloth, this acedia, this this spiritual carelessness right. takes can take over right. unless we say, God, I really need you now more than ever. Because this is where love matures. And I think this is where love becomes beautiful. And so when you get to the other side of that, what do you see? You see the happily married couple celebrating their 75th wedding anniversary. Or, you know, the, the sister at her 75th jubilee or the priest at his 50th jubilee, whatever. Yeah. That's where the real joy comes from is, is that you chose to love with God's grace and he brought you deeper. Yeah. Or, you know, the married couple who made it through, you know, that it's really interesting, that whole idea of, you know, you're having this midlife crisis, and usually these pass in two years. So if you can make it through these two years, <laughs> you're going to make it. So I think like hearing things like that from people who've gone before us is incredibly helpful because to know that you're weak, to know the devil's going to attack, to know your selfishness is going to attack. But on the other side... You're not going to have any regrets if you if you push through the pain, as some of these families right. have said. Right. You know that um, there's something I don't understand. There's something I'm not seeing. But this is what's right to be true to what I promised, to rely on God's grace. And those are the people who've never regretted it, right? But mm -hmm. the people who make all these crazy decisions in their midlife mm -hmm. crisis, they're the ones who have all this regret, this pain, and not to mention the pain they cause to those they love. You know, their own children, their spouse, whatever. I, I thought, I think, too, that's one of the aids of marriage, too. It's very concrete. Now, religious life, sometimes we can spiritualize things, and, well, nobody's really depending on me or something. But, you know, if you got kids, or, and even grandkids, and maybe 
you know, your children are depending on you to help them with the grandkids. You know, there's a call to fidelity and things. And uh, But yeah, I love the, that theme of, we were talking about it earlier, about the discipleship and, you know, from Luke's gospel that, you know, he calls us, he says that, he looks at the crowds, the multitudes following him, and he says, unless, unless, unless you hate your father and mother, you know, you cannot be a right disciple. And, you know, unless you... Uh, surrender, you know, even your own family to the Lord. You know, give them over to the Lord and and renounce all your possessions. And and I was sharing how that encouraged me because it's like, you know, if it doesn't go that far, you kind of start taking shortcuts, you know, <laughs> and and those shortcuts just keep getting bigger and bigger. And uh, it's almost like God demands all; He can deliver all; He can fulfill. Only God can fulfill us if we've given up. And died to the world, even died to our very selves. You know, we have to lose our lives. Um, you know, I, I think that that was powerful. I was just reading that in the mass one time, and it's like, wow, that that is something we need to hear and hear again. And and I, I do think, like you said, I know it's been such a blessing in my life. The older generations, I my grandparents, three of them lived into their nineties, and just to see their witness and perseverance and through marriage and death of children and um, just you know it does we'll say well they you know they kept going they didn't quit you know they had troubles and I was asking a friend of mine who he's now almost 70 but he, he lost his son when the son was only five years old and his his wife died in the late 30s from cancer and had other different his his daughter was had breast cancer and I said how did you make it through all that and he said, he said it was really just one day at a time. He said he just focused on today and present moment, God's grace there. And that wisdom that comes from those who have gone before us is so precious, you know, that a book can't give it to you. You know, you need a witness to see that. And um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's a wonderful meditation about midlife. <laughs> Thanks so much for chatting with us. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Father Mark. Thank you.